This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. John and I are here again, and we are talking about COVID. John, how are things in Calgary? Based on the news, it seems pretty bad out there. Yeah, uh, if you've been paying attention, Alberta's not doing so great right now, uh, largely to do with the fact that come the summertime, our leaders decided that COVID was over. But sure enough, the fourth wave has another plan. And so, yeah, volumes are getting pretty high and uh, things are getting a little hairy out here. Yeah, total leadership failure, it seems like. And in case the listeners are curious, we are recording September 26th, 2021. All right, John, what article are you talking about first? Well, along the lines, why not go back and do some COVID stuff? Because there's been a couple of recent trials. So uh, the first one, I'm going to talk about this awake prone positioning for COVID-19 acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, a randomized controlled trial. This was by Ehrman et al. and published in The Lancet just August of this year. Cool. What was their research question? Uh, they really wanted to know, can prone positioning prevent intubation or death in patients with severe COVID pneumonia? All right. And uh, yeah, why did this study catch your eye? Well, it's just been one of those things we've wondered about. Um, for some patients with severe COVID pneumonia, intubation really becomes the only tool for treatment in severe hypoxemic respiratory failure. We know that in non-COVID illnesses like moderate to severe ARDS for whatever reason, that prone positioning improves oxygenation and reduces mortality. There have been some really small uh, kind of dinky studies in COVID to look for feasibility, but maybe there was a signal there. And so the things that we don't know, though, is like, what if prone positioning isn't safe? Like, what if it delays intubation and people get worse? So there's kind of a, an important question that needs to be answered. And the other thing that's important here is that some people have already started to adopt it into their clinical practice without really knowing if it's safe or not. So good on these researchers for trying to answer the question in a scientific way. Yep, totally agree. And I think without randomization, it's almost impossible to know if something works or not. So speaking of which, you want to tell us about this uh, randomized trial? Yeah, so this was interesting. There were actually five trials on the go that were looking at a similar kind of clinical endpoints, um, similar study designs. And they ended up doing this kind of meta trial analysis where all five of the study coordinators decided to agree upon making a few changes. So these were five trials looking at awake prone positioning. Each trial compared prone to standard of care in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure, which really meant on high flow nasal cannula. They tried to harmonize the inclusion and exclusion criteria across the trials, and they then identified core data that could be kind of extracted from all of the study sets. Uh, hospitals were from Canada, France, the US, Mexico, Spain, and Ireland. Uh, generally speaking, patients were 18 years of age or older. They had to have hypoxemic respiratory failure due to or highly suspected to be because of COVID-19. And of course, that's just because sometimes, you know, you get the clinical picture, but the COVID swab might take like, you know, 12 hours to come back. You don't want to delay if you know what's going on. So respiratory failure was defined as high flow nasal cannula. Um, and they use this ratio of peripheral SAT to FiO2 of 315 or less, which is equivalent to like about a PF ratio of less than 300. Uh, they excluded those who are human hemodynamically unstable, if you had severe obesity defined as a BMI of greater than 40, and pregnant women were also excluded. 
So they randomized uh, awake prone positioning to standard of care. Of course, the investigators, the patients, they couldn't be blinded because of the nature of the investigation. Um, when it came to the proning, um, so the goal here was to do it for as long as possible each day. Uh, they didn't have like a specific kind of definition for how long you needed to be prone for. A duration was recorded by nursing staff and they tried to harmonize what the triggers would then be for intubation. And specifically those were if the respirate was greater than 40, respiratory muscle fatigue, uh, severe acidosis, uh, worsening secretions, hypoxemic respiratory failure, you know, like worsening SpO2 or hemodynamic instability. Uh, those are some of the criteria that they then used to say, okay, now's the time, let's intubate. So the outcomes. The primary outcome was treatment failure within 28 days, and that was defined as intubation or death. There were a bunch of secondary outcomes that included things like specifically just intubation, just mortality, other things like use of non-invasive ventilation, and then a bunch of safety outcomes as well. Gotcha. Yeah. So pretty much what we're talking here is, you know, realistically, there were five some odd trials on the go. They decided to, you know, let's sort of combine forces as best we can sort of after the fact. And if you're on high flow nasal cannula, you had COVID, you're randomized to prone versus standard of care. And the outcome was a composite of intubation or death. Is that about right? You got it. All right. So yeah, what did the patients look like who were included? So they screened about 2,300 patients and ultimately about 1,100 were randomized. Uh, exclusions were because of things like no consent provided, you know, they required immediate intubation because of clinical deterioration or contraindications to proning. Um, most of the patients were from Mexico, France, and the U.S., about 33% were female. Uh, the BMI average was about 29.7. Uh, similar proportions of things like chronic lung disease, CKD, diabetes, obesity between the two groups. 88% of patients had received steroids as part of their standard treatment care. Now, one thing that we'll talk a little bit more later on is that only about 4% of patients were enrolled on a general internal medicine floor, whereas the majority, about 60% were from ICU and 35% were from what they described as an intermediate care unit. So, you know, one of those step up or step down units. The median duration for awake proning was about five hours. Gotcha. So what did they find? Did it work? Well, it did. When it came to treatment failure, which again was this intubation or death within 28 days, it occurred in 40% of prone patients versus 46% of standard of care. So that was a relative risk of 0.86. The number needed to treat here is about 15. There were some secondary analyses which showed that really that a primary outcome was driven by preventing intubation as opposed to a mortality benefit itself. There was actually no difference in mortality. They also showed that longer mean duration of proning was more frequent in patients that had treatment success. As well that among those who were intubated, mortality was similar between the two groups, as was the duration of intubation, which is kind of reassuring about that piece for, you know, like, are we delaying and making worse outcomes? And then from a safety perspective, they looked at some like very, you know, reasonable things like they found no difference in skin breakdown, vomiting, central or arterial line dislodgement. There were a few events of cardiac arrest, three in the prone group and one in the standard of care, but the cardiac arrest did not occur during prone positioning or during maneuvering from prone to supine or vice versa. Okay, fair enough. Um, main limitations here? Well, of course, you know, by design and the, the nature of the study, it can't be blinded. So that's one thing, I guess. Now, I think one of the limitations more for you and I as internists is just the generalizability. These patients were enrolled almost exclusively in the intensive care unit, whereas now, especially, a lot of our patients are being managed on the wards because in Alberta in particular, our ICUs are overwhelmed. And I think that our nurses on the ward are able to provide excellent 
level of care, but it's not the Q1 hour checks that ICU nurses are able to provide. And so it just makes you wonder, you know, are we going to be able to know if someone's deteriorating the same that they would have been able to tell in these studies because those patients were in the ICU already? Gotcha. I mean, I guess ultimately though, like even if there was a difference there, I think if anything, it would just kind of bias towards the no. Like I don't think it would you know, change the outcome specifically in the proning arm per se. Yeah. See, I don't know. I'm a little bit more skeptical. So I think, you know, there's always a hazard when you are sort of combining trials after the fact. And I completely appreciate why they did that. I also worry buried deep in the appendix. It seemed like all of the individual trials did not show a difference except the Mexico trial, which showed a very pronounced reduction. And in Mexico, they averaged like nine hours of proning per day, which is, you know, that's pretty impressive. So I am a bit more skeptical. But anyway, what's a take home point from your end? I guess the take home point is that awake prone positioning appears to be safe and leads to less intubation in sick patients with, you know, severe COVID pneumonia. And is this practice changing for you? I think you already brought up really kind of key considerations as well. I don't know that this is ready to be kind of standard of care on the internal medicine floor just yet. I think it would be nice to see these kind of results reproduced in other trials. Probably though that, you know, the safety signal is there. And so I guess if you're running out of options, it might not be unreasonable to consider prone positioning, knowing that it's probably safe, but whether or not it's effective, I guess is to be determined. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And certainly when I was just on the ward uh, a week or two ago, um, we had a patient who sort of perfectly fit the criteria, uh, attempted to prone him. But what happened? He just found it wasn't comfortable and decided not to, which is what seems to happen in real life. So I kind of think we either need to know what they were doing in Mexico or figure out some other device or positioning pillows or something to make this more achievable to improve adherence. But fair enough, you know, I obviously do think the results are pretty impressive and the risks are probably low. I have a humongous conflict of interest because I was part of a trial uh, on the non-ICU setting, which has been submitted and we'll see what happens. But our trial was stopped for futility. We, you know, there was just no semblance of a difference, um, mainly probably because like, it's just not realistic to get people to prone on an internal medicine ward. But anyway, this is why we do these trials. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and nine hours on my stomach, like I think that would be really challenging to try to do. So I get it. I can understand why that wouldn't work for most people. Yeah, I'd have to either be chemically sedated or uh, physically restrained. But anyway, okay, I'm um, continuing on the topic of COVID and treatment. We're going to be talking next about heparin for moderately ill patients with COVID-19 published in MedArchive. I don't think we've talked about too many studies in the preprint form on the rounds table. Uh, first author, um, a great friend, mentor, colleague, uh, Dr. Michelle Schulzberg. Uh, fantastic. So what was the research question here? Does therapeutic anticoagulation improve outcomes compared to thromboprophylaxis for non-critically ill patients hospitalized with COVID-19? And why did you think this was important? So we clearly know that um, patients who are hospitalized with COVID, they're sick. Uh, they're very sick. And they're at a markedly increased risk of venous thromboembolism. Lots and lots of preliminary data from earlier studies that one of the reasons why patients die might be related to undiagnosed, you know, massive PE 
or clots on a much smaller scale within, uh, you know, the pulmonary vasculature. So, you know, just a super important topic uh, to, to think about. Absolutely. I completely agree. And it was a big question that, you know, are we doing the wrong thing by not anticoagulating people empirically? So that's great to, I'm curious, what did we find out? So first though, uh, what was the study designed? So this was an um, unblinded international um, randomized controlled trial, including patients who are hospitalized with COVID, typically on the general internal medicine ward. They have to have um, a D-dimer two times the upper limit of normal or one times the upper limit of normal if they were also on oxygen. Um, main exclusion criteria if patients were intubated or about to be intubated, if they were critically ill and in the ICU, or if they're at a marked increased risk of bleeding, as well as pregnant patients. The primary outcome here was a composite of death, invasive mechanical ventilation, and non-invasive mechanical ventilation or ICU admission. Okay, great. What did the patients look like? So 4,000 were screened, uh, 465 were randomized, mean age of 60, 57% men, average BMI of 30, mean duration of symptoms was seven days, um, time from hospitalization to randomization was about a day and a half, and I'll note up front that the mean duration of treatment was about six days. At baseline, about 70% got steroids. Very few people had received remdesivir or tocilizumab. And the distribution from a geography standpoint, a quarter of the patients from Brazil, 30% from Canada, 30% from uh, Saudi Arabia. Okay, great. So what did they find? So at 28 days, 16% of patients randomized to therapeutic heparin experienced the primary outcome compared to 22% who received um, prophylactic dose. So that corresponds to an odds ratio of, you know, let's just round it, um, 0.70, albeit with wide confidence intervals that um, crossed one. They also looked at things like major bleeding. So major bleeding uh, occurred very rarely, uh, 1% in patients who got um, full dose therapeutic anticoagulant and slightly higher in those who are on prophylactic um, heparin. PE was relatively rare, uh, 1% among those on therapeutic anticoagulation versus 3% on prophylactic. Around the same time, there's another large trial, the multi-platform trial. So the results also included, or the study included a meta-analysis. I think one trial is amazing. More than one is even better. So if you meta-analyze the results, you saw clear improvements in, for example, you know, death or invasive mechanical ventilation and potentially all-cause mortality, albeit with a slightly increased risk of um, bleeding, but with wide confidence intervals as well. Yeah, that result is pretty impressive. Uh, what are some of the limitations here? So um, similar to the prone trial, it wasn't uh, blinded. So if a trial isn't blinded, you know, randomization takes away selection bias. So you sort of know at the start of the trial, the patients in the two groups are going to look the exact same. But what it doesn't protect against is bias that might pop up after the time of randomization. So that is certainly a possibility here. And then, you know, I was a part of this clinical trial on the steering committee for it. And when it was being planned in its early days, we of course didn't know what the event rate was going to be. And that's important when you're conducting statistical power calculations. So there's definitely a possibility that maybe our trial was just underpowered. And that's why it didn't reach that sort of magical um, upper bound confidence interval of less than one. Okay. Uh, what are some of the take-homes here? 
So take-home point, full-dose anticoagulation in patients who are non-critically ill appears to improve outcomes and doesn't appear to put patients at a markedly increased risk of bleeding. I'll ask you in a second just about you know practice changing. One question is, within the trial, did, was there any kind of subgroup analyses around, okay, they're on the therapeutic anticoagulation, for whatever reason you get, you pull the trigger and get like Doppler cerulean DVT, or they get a CTPE protocol and they don't have a PE. Did they keep those patients on anticoagulation because of the concern for kind of the, like, what, what's the word, like the subclinical PE or like, you know, the, the microvascular pulmonary embolism? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, from a clinical trial standpoint, we only sort of give recommendations. It's the attending clinician, the MRP, who gets to make that decision. But I remember being in that scenario, reaching out to Michelle and others, and as best you can, you really want to stick to the arm in which somebody's randomized to, unless, of course, they're experiencing harm. Or, of course, in the scenario of somebody who's on DVT prophylaxis, you scan them and they got a monster clot. Of course, you know, you cross that person over, but as, as best you can in that scenario, you know, you would want to maintain randomization. Okay. So what do you think? Practice changing? Yeah, I think this is practice changing. Um, it's changed my practice ever since this trial in combination with uh, the meta-analysis of the two available studies for a non-critically ill patient. If they're on my ward and your D-dimer is two times the upper limit of normal, I am most likely going to be anticoagulating you, of course, with a conversation with the patient about the risks and benefits here. Bleeding was rare. It reduces the risk of clot and it likely reduces um, the risk of the primary endpoint. In the setting of a pandemic, this is enough evidence for me to change my practice and to have a, you know a good conversation with my patients about the risks and benefits. Yeah, fair enough. I think this is, um, we had a big meeting as a group and it's really being introduced as kind of standard of care for our patients who meet criteria for the trial as well. Just remind me, when it came to bleeding risk, was it has blood score that they were using as kind of a main kind of risk stratifier? No, we didn't use the HasBled score. When we were excluding patients from the study, it was patients like, I was just hospitalized for a bleed, or, you know, I'm already on dual antiplatelets and then you can't stop one of the antiplatelets. Um, so those were the types of patients who would have been excluded and never introduced into the study. I'm not sure what you're finding in Calgary. Here in Toronto, most of the patients who are being hospitalized, they're young and otherwise healthy. They have no freaking reason to bleed. And we know that COVID leads to clots. So it's this, you know, the give and take here. And you're being pulled in two different directions, which is why I think bleeding didn't happen all that often when they were fully anticoagulated, because COVID is tipping everyone in the scale of clotting. Yeah, okay, great point. All right, John, well, that is it for rapid fire COVID. So uh, what's the good stuff that you have to talk about? Uh, the good stuff, so... What I found was a nice little um, article from the Globe and Mail. We'll have a link to it. Uh, but Sick Kids is near and dear to my heart. I know your heart too and our family's heart. But uh, one of the Toronto entrepreneurs, Gary Hurwitz, is going to donate $50 million to support brain and mental health for Sick Kids, which is a pretty a great, great initiative, um, quite a donation. Yeah, I, I completely agree for sure. So, you know, yours is like um, a very heartfelt, uh, good stuff. Mine is much more base than that. 
Brittany and I were watching a Dragon's Den and, and we were hearing it pitch. This is like from years gone by, but you know, we ran out of good stuff to watch. So, so we, we started watching older Dragon's Den and there is this type of candy. You know, I love candy. It's called Smart Sweets. So it's very, very low in sugar, but it tastes just like the real thing. And anyway, they're delicious. They're high in fiber. That's the good stuff that I have to share for today. <laughs> uh, you don't have any inside scoop with the company, right? <laughs> No, no, no conflicts of interest. But now that I think about it, maybe I should buy some stocks. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, Mike, we will chat again. Stay well. Thanks, John. You too. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.